Reverend Pamela has selected a reading today, which is an excerpt from the book, A Closed and Comet Orbit by Becky Chambers. Life is terrifying. None of us have a rule book. None of us know what we're doing here. So the easiest way to stare reality in the face and not utterly lose your shit is to believe that you have control over it. If you believe you have control, then you believe you're at the top. And if you're at the top, then people who aren't like you, well, they've got to be somewhere lower, right? Every species does this, does it again and again and again. Doesn't matter if they do it to themselves or another species or someone they created. Our presentation today that we're looking forward to is Star Trekking Home, Welcoming Ourselves by Reverend Pamela Romancic. Reverend Pamela Romancic is a poet, a native plant enthusiast, and spiritual seeker retired from serving the Unitarian Church in Hinsdale, Illinois. Her spiritual roots reach back to Catholicism, and she is an initiate into the Sufi tradition. These deep liturgical origins inform her love of the arts as a vehicle for experiencing the holy. Pam's deepest commitments are to remembering the divine in each being and finding ways to open conversation with folks who see the world differently. Originally from Lorraine, Ohio, she is the mother of three grown children and the wife of Reverend Karen Mooney. Pam and Karen live in Bull Valley, Illinois. Welcome, Reverend Pamela. It's really good to be here with you today. It's such a beautiful space. Thank you. Well, I'm going to tell you a story. My wife and I <clears throat> were listening to an audiobook as we drove across country for our daughter's wedding a, a little while back. And we started listening to a book called A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which was written by Becky Chambers. And it made us laugh, it made us cry. It was a wonderful book to listen to and a wonderful book to read. And now I have a whole stack of her books that I got for Christmas, so yay. But it's the story of a spaceship that's called the Wayfarer. And it travels through space, cutting holes in the fabric of space, which creates shortcuts so that they can improve the um, commerce throughout the galactic community. And it's not a fancy explorer ship. It's a road work crew, and they spend their whole lives living in this kind of scrapped-together ship, doing run-of-the-mill work that pays okay. And the story is told from the perspective of Rosemary, who's a human on this, in a landscape where humanity is only exists as a very small remnant of a group who left the Earth a long time ago when they had made it unlivable um, through the, the environment, unlivable. So... Um, the crew includes some humans. The captain is human. His name's Ashby. It has two human techs. Do we have pictures or no? No? <laughs> okay, they're coming. It has two human techs named Kizzy and Jenks, an algist named Artis. But the pilot is an Andrisk, and her name is Sissix. And they also have a Grum named Dr. Chef, a cyanate pair called Ohan, and an AI named Lubby. There they are. They're a fun crew. 
Now these very different characters lean into their differences and they find ways to support one another despite feeling uncomfortable sometimes. And I love Chambers' description of how they respond to different situations because it was, for me, it breaks me out of the ways that I would think I would respond. <clears throat> and she also often addressed, <coughs> excuse me, very specific blockages around interpersonal relationships that I have experienced in my life. But since she does it with alien, aliens, it opened my mind to new possibilities. Since we've never met an Eluan, we don't have any built-in presuppositions or prejudices. One of the storylines involves Rosemary and Sissix. There they are. Rosemary notices that Sissix is always way more cuddly and physically affectionate than the humans on the ship are. And she, she just notices and wonders about it. But they get to be good friends. And so one day they go to visit Sissix's home planet. And when they get some time off, and when they arrive and they go to her family, Rosemary is surprised by how much resistance she feels in her body as Sissix's family comes pouring out the door and they, they fall into this giant puppy pile of snuggling and cuddling and rubbing and some even breaking apart to couple. This is normal stuff for this species, and it works great for them. Rosemary appreciates that, but it gets her to thinking. She realizes how sterile and antiseptic the ship must feel for Sissix to be with a bunch of species that don't touch and snuggle nearly as much as Andrus do. And she starts to wonder how she can adjust her own comfort level to be able to support her friend. And they set aside time to have some real conversations about the disparities and the ways they can bridge both expectations and needs for both of them. Rosemary realizes that Sissix has been doing all the adjusting so far, and that's not fair. She doesn't stop being human. She just adjusts her behavior to be more welcoming to another human being. That's what I love about sci-fi. It lets us step outside of the mores we've been indoctrinated into our whole lives, and it lets us imagine different ways of being. There's a story, you might have heard it. Two young fish swimming along, and an older fish comes the other way and says, Hi, boys, how's the water? And they continue swimming for a couple more minutes until one finally says to the other, What the heck is water? <laughs> Many of us exist without ever noticing the water we're swimming in. Right now, we are in a new moment in history. There are tremendous changes going on in the world around us, in our country, on the earth itself. And even definitions of church seem to be changing in the after effects of the pandemic and all of these regular reminders of climate change that we see around us. It's becoming clearer and clearer every day that the only thing permanent in life is change and that we're in the midst of it. But while it's challenging, it also can open us up to maybe seeing things and being in ways we've never imagined before. I'm going to give you an example. <clears throat> I grew up in a working class Catholic community in Lorain, Ohio, and never even suspected that I might be queer until I was nearly 40. It just wasn't within my range of options, so I never saw it. Honestly, I thought they used beautiful women in advertising because everybody was attracted to beautiful women. And that crush I had on my jazzercise instructor, that was normal, right? Maybe not. 
And even when I'd opened myself up enough to go to seminary and become a UU minister, I still couldn't see what I didn't see. Because the seminarian at my home church invited me to go out to dinner when she learned that I'd been accepted to go to Meadville Lombard Theological School. And it was exciting, and I was very nervous, especially as I realized that everybody else at that dinner was gay. They were fun and smart and warm and welcoming, but I was acutely aware that I was not like them. I was in a room full of queer people. I finally knew what it felt like to be a minority. When I mentioned this observation to the intern, she kind of stared at me like I was from another planet. It was just a room full of people. I'm still embarrassed by that memory and how I realized that it was me that was othering people, that I was bringing something with me that didn't exist for anybody else. It's hard to see the water in our bowl. Life is a journey. It's a constant transition from one reality into another, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. And as you use Unitarian Universalist, we've been trying to transition into a more welcoming and more open reality, one that makes space for all kinds of perspectives and understandings and lived realities that are different from the status quo. And I have preached welcoming services at churches for many, many years now. But you know, this vision has been preached in our churches for the past 30, 40, 50 years, maybe even longer. And Sunday mornings are still the most segregated hour of the week. Not because we're bad people. Not because we haven't tried. And not because we don't value diversity in the abstract. But maybe because we start at the wrong end. Maybe we start thinking that we have to get people that we see as other into our pews. Whoever those other are. Too many times we push for diversity but have little understanding of what diversity is going to ask of us. And once it gets a little bit rough, we back into our little safe cocoons of sameness and declare it just doesn't work. We want people with different shades of melanin and different pronouns and different family recipes, but we really want them to fit into exactly what is here right now, what's comfortable. All humans long for a feeling of belonging, for that being seen and being welcomed. And sometimes we have to give up a little bit of who we are to get to that. But the really question is, how much should we have to give up? At my first UU church, there was a huge culture of classical music. And I was always more of a folk and bluegrass girl. But I would nod my head as people went on ecstatically about some piece of music that I thought was eh. I did my best to pass and to find a way to fit into this group of seekers who aligned with my spiritual journey. And isn't that normal? To some extent, we all have to do some give and take to be part of any community. But there is a limit to how much anyone should have to give up to fit in. Often, Unitarian Universalists want to be the cool people with the readily apparent diversity. And we also want to remain the comfortable place that it has always been. Please join us, but don't expect we're going to change. I've wrestled this with this at previous churches. The way people of color or younger people are often surrounded by well-intended church members trying to make them feel so welcome that they will stay. But that welcome can only be skin deep sometimes. And the folks who are willing to give up some part of their experience to claim this kinship, they will stay on. 
but others come to a few services or events and realize there really isn't room for the whole of who they are. I thought I had to become a minister to get folk music played in my services. What's going on with all of this? Why is it so difficult to create the wide community that we say we want? There's an academic and poet named Bayo Akomolafe, and he describes a new way of thinking that he describes as post-activism, decolonialization, and transracial. He's also known for saying, the times are urgent, let us slow down. The times are urgent, let us slow down. Who doesn't want to slow down? When I heard that, I was hooked. Coming out of Nigeria, Akomalafe sees differences that we're talking about, but he sees them with a twist. He says whiteness is a field. It's a perspective and a way of being in the world that flattens and takes away the rich contours of life to allow people to feel safe and in control. It's about believing that if we just have enough control, we can feel comfortable all the time. And it holds within it a judgment of difference, of anything that might disrupt that promise of sanctuary. Becky Chambers wrote, if you believe you have control, then you believe you're at the top. And if you're at the top, then people who aren't like you, they got to be somewhere lower, right? That fits my experience of whiteness. Akomalafe says that blackness is also a field, but it's a field that is resisting flattening. Blackness pushes for the fullness of life, for all of the emotions, not just the easy ones. It's an acknowledgement that life is hard no matter what the advertisers are promising. And he acknowledges that we all live in bodies that are recognized as black or brown or white. And that recognition changes our experience and how we, how we are experienced in the world. But that we can also make a conscious choice to be part of either field. We can hold on to the illusion of control, or we can be part of the resistance. As we all know, whiteness is the default in this country, even if it means code shifting, acting white, at least some of the time. But whiteness is a lie that says that if we're just good enough, if we just follow all the rules, if we just know the right people or own the right products or drive the right cars, we can be safe and in control of our lives and feel safe all the time. And Kamalafi says that people with black skin also inhabit the white field, and that his home country of Nigeria leans into a flattening of life, even though it has one of the highest per capita populations of dark-skinned people in the world. I think it's what's driving white people to ban books and restrict certain histories from being taught. They believe the lie that they never have to feel distress. And they're working with all their might to maintain a system that allows comfortable ignorance. It's easy to see out there. It's harder to recognize in here. This work opened up a huge place of possibility for me. Because if whiteness and blackness can be inhabited by anyone, if they are a perspective and a worldview rather than a divined and unchangeable part of who I am, then I have the choice and the freedom to choose where I'm going to reside. I can identify the places where I act from whiteness, and I can reevaluate and say, does that serve me? 
Does shutting down my emotions, does tightly following the rules, does avoiding discomfort at all costs, does that create the life I really want to live? Because you know what? It takes a lot of energy to press down emotions. It's kind of like in our farm fields where it takes a lot of poison to kill off everything to maintain the monoculture. And it's no wonder so many people in this country feel angry and depressed at having to shove down all those uncomfortable and unwelcome feelings. What if we stopped and accepted the whole of ourselves and the whole of each person that we met without trying to make them be like us? I'll give you an example of flattening in real life. A person I know belongs to a women's chorus, and they've been trying to become more diverse over the years, and they formed committees, and they held talking circles, they read tons of books and watched movies, and they even changed their bylaws to be a little bit more welcoming, so they sang more songs written by women of color. And they made some progress, and some more women of color have joined, their, have joined the group. But at a rehearsal, the conductor invited the group to go off book on this one part that she was conducting. It was written by a black composer, and the director wanted to try to break them out of the tightly controlled rhythm that they were just singing in, because she knew there was a lot more joy in that song. But she got so much pushback from the white women in the chorus that she just said, all right, fine, we'll just sing it as written. And it was only afterwards when she was remembering it, she realized that the black women in the chorus had supported her, and they had said, yeah, let's go. They wanted her to keep trying it and trying to pull that, that joy that they knew lived in that song out of it. Whiteness in the chorus was at work because it wanted everything to be rule-bound and refused to let in any wiggle room from the written notation. And blackness resisted. Blackness wanted freedom and joy, even at the expense of maybe being a little bit different. What if our congregations stopped worrying about how many people of different skin tones or genders or even ages came through the building and started making space for the fullest range of human emotions for everybody? What if we started living so fully and so joyfully and embracing all of the sorrow and the pain and the messiness that's really part of the human experience that other people looking in said, hey, I want that too. I want that it doesn't start out there. It starts in here. It starts by being part of the resistance, by noticing the times that I shut down my own needs in order to fit in. It's okay to do that if you make a conscious choice. But when if I notice it in myself, then I can notice the times that I judge someone else for not fitting in. And it's not a huge, life-changing program. It's tiny, day-to-day noticings and adjustments, which make room for all the different ways of being human on this big blue planet. As the bottom line is, we are all just a bunch of aliens sliding through space together, each of us bringing unique gifts, distinct perspectives, different ways of appreciating the world. And embracing all the alien qualities in ourself is the first step to seeing the wholeness in everyone around us. I'm going to close with the words of a famous alien with pointy ears. Live long and prosper.
Oh, I think it, that's exactly, I'm going to bring up Bayo again, because I think that's exactly his point. It's it, how we experience life depends on how much melatonin we have in our bodies. But how we think about the world, he, he separates that out is into whiteness and blackness just because of those are the words we use. But it, it has nothing to do with what, how much whiteness or blackness you have. It's why he said his home country of Nigeria is actually has that one is the highest per capita of dark-skinned people, very dark-skinned people. And he said they lean into that whiteness, that flattening of emotion, that doing things right. So that was, that was the, how I put those two together. Our closing words are an excerpt from The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers, read by Reverend Pam. All you can do, Rosemary, all any of us can do, is work to be something positive instead. That is a choice that every sapient must make every day of their life. The universe is what we make of it, and it's up to you to decide what part you will play. Thank you.